are now listening to the December 16th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Let's Read the Bible, Sermon, and Equipping the Saints. First, let's begin with Let's Read the Bible. Hello, listeners. This is Nicole leading the Let's Read the Bible. The Bible offers many comparisons between the wicked and the righteous. Today's reading from Proverbs chapter 11, in particular, continues to contrast the two. As we read each verse of Proverbs 11, we should ask ourselves, Am I righteous or wicked? Do I want to be righteous or wicked? During King Solomon's reign, Israel was a wealthy nation with active trade with many other countries. However, even in such a prosperous time, there were differences in the way the wicked and righteous lived. The wicked used deceitful scales to cheat others for their own gain, while the righteous used fair scales. Proverbs 11.1 says that God hates dishonest scales but delights in accurate weights. Today, we too may be tempted to use deceitful tactics for short-term gain and sometimes we may feel guilty about it. However, what is more important than feeling guilty is understanding what pleases and displeases God. Initially, feeling guilty may be difficult, but as we repeat the same mistakes, our conscience becomes weaker, and we may no longer feel convicted at all. Nevertheless, God's standard remains unchanged. What He hated yesterday he hates today, and will hate tomorrow. What he loved yesterday, he loves today, and will love tomorrow. So which are you, dear listeners? Are you living as a righteous person, pleasing God? Or are you living as a wicked person, displeasing God? When we talk about being wicked, we don't necessarily mean a villain from a movie. Today, as you read Proverbs chapter 11, I encourage you to examine your own life. Let us hope to live as righteous people who please God. Here is Let's Read the Bible, Proverbs chapter 11, verses 1 to 31. A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is His delight. When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. The integrity of the upright guides them, but the crookedness of the treacherous destroys them. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. The righteousness of the blameless keeps his way straight, but the wicked falls by his own wickedness. The righteousness of the upright delivers them, but the treacherous are taken captive by their lust. When the wicked dies, his hope will perish and the expectation of wealth perishes too. The righteous is delivered from trouble, and the wicked walks into it instead. With his mouth, the godless man would destroy his neighbor, but by knowledge the righteous are delivered. When it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices, and when the wicked perish, there are shouts of gladness. By the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted, but by the mouth of the wicked, it is overthrown.
Whoever belittles his neighbor lacks sense, but a man of understanding remains silent. Whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets, but he who is trustworthy in spirit keeps a thing covered. Where there is no guidance, a people falls, but in an abundance of counselors there is safety. Whoever puts up security for a stranger will surely suffer harm, but he who hates striking hands and pledge is secure. A gracious woman gets honor, and violent men get riches. A man who is kind benefits himself, but a cruel man hurts himself. The wicked earn deceptive wages, but one who sows righteousness gets a sure reward. Whoever is steadfast in righteousness will live, but he who pursues evil will die. Those of crooked heart are an abomination to the Lord, but those of blameless ways are his delight. Be assured, an evil person will not go unpunished, but the offspring of the righteous will be delivered. Like a gold ring in a pig's snout, is a beautiful woman without discretion. One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give, and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and one who waters will himself be watered. The people curse him who holds back grain, but a blessing is on the head of him who sells it. Whoever diligently seeks good seeks favor, but evil comes to him who searches for it. Whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. Whoever troubles his own household will inherit the wind, and the fool will be servants to the wise of heart. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. And whoever captures souls is wise. If the righteous is repaid on earth, how much more the wicked and the sinner? Let's read the Bible. We have just read chapter eleven, verses one to thirty-one. See you next week.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor David Platt of McLean Bible Church. Today's topic is, How Can You Keep on Rejoicing in Suffering? I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor David. I want us to start today by reading 1 Peter chapter 1 together. So 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Let's say it out loud together. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look." Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited by your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world and was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, 
who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified yourselves by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Amen. Ah, praise God for his word. It's so good and it is so relevant. I want to show you how. So I think it's clear, even if you just heard 1 Peter 1 for the first time, from the start of this letter, Peter is writing to Christians in churches spread throughout various regions who are experiencing suffering. So you go back to verse 6, and Peter said how they are being grieved, did you catch the language, by various trials. And their faith is being tested, like gold being tested by fire. So it's not surprising then for us to get to our text today, so starting in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, and we hear Peter say, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. It's almost the exact same language that Peter started the letter with. Then listen to what he says next, verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. That's the same language we just read back in chapter one, verse six. In this you rejoice. You hear that language, rejoice with joy that's inexpressible. So now in chapter 4, verse 12, he says it again, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad. So the question I want to answer today is, how is that possible? How can you keep on rejoicing in the middle of suffering? I think that is an extremely relevant question for our lives. Because I know every single person within the sound of my voice right now is either suffering right now, you have suffered, or you will suffer. I think about Phil and Larissa Wynn at our Loudon location who unexpectedly lost their two-year-old this week. I think about Ben Fairfax, my friend and brother here at Tyson's, who was feeling fine a month ago till he had a CT scan that revealed inoperable cancer, and now he's fighting for his life. To others who are struggling in marriage, others who have suffered financially as your savings have been depleted, you're struggling from paycheck to paycheck, or maybe that business you poured so much of your life into is struggling to survive. I think about NBC missionaries who join us every week online, 
walking through all kinds of struggles, separated from family and comfort, living as outsiders in another culture. I could go on and on, and in every story, the question is the same. How do you keep on rejoicing in the middle of hard days? And one of my jobs as a pastor is to prepare you for hard days. I was reading an article this last week from Tim Chalice. He's a friend whose 20-year-old son suddenly collapsed and died about a month ago. And Tim described how agonizing this last month has been emotionally, but not theologically. And here's what I mean by that. Actually, here's what he meant by that. He was writing about how, by God's grace, he and his family were ready. They had been trained by God's word in sound doctrine. He said, in the moment we heard that news, we knew the character of God, we knew the promises of God, and we knew where we stood with God. And unbeknownst to us, he said, we had been preparing ourselves with truths that were ready to be called upon and relied upon in that moment of need. He said, there's no way we could have prepared ourselves for the emotional agony of losing a child, but we did prepare ourselves theologically. During these days, we have not had to ask the big questions about whether God is good or whether something can happen outside of God's control or whether God is punishing us or whether there is really a heaven or hell. Those issues were considered, discussed, and decided long ago. We had established in our minds and hearts the truths that would interpret our experience. And this is one of my primary prayers for you. I want you, right where you're sitting, to be ready when the day of suffering comes or when the days of suffering continue. I want you to know the character of God and the promises of God. I want you to know where you stand with God. I want you to be prepared with truths that are ready to be called upon and relied upon in that moment. And then I haven't even gotten to the specific type of suffering that Peter is addressing in this letter, and that's suffering for being a Christian. So Peter's writing to people who, because of their faith, were being denied jobs and economic opportunities. They were experiencing social isolation because of their faith. Some of them experiencing active persecution that would lead to their imprisonment and death, including Peter himself, who would be killed for following Jesus. And it's interesting, I read a Bible commentator this week who was talking about how most Christians in the West, particularly in the United States, don't know this kind of suffering. Certainly not to the level that first century Christians knew it. She said, and I quote, modern Western society has for many centuries been so largely shaped by the Judeo-Christian ethic that acceptable values of Christians and of unbelievers have not necessarily conflicted so sharply. Therefore, Western Christians may not be able to relate to the theme of suffering for Christ in 1 Peter, since most have not lived in a social, social situation similar to the original readers. And I read that, and then I thought about the direction that our culture and our country is going in, how biblical views of marriage and sexuality have become increasingly countercultural, even offensive. And I don't think we are very far off from the time when many of your jobs will be threatened 
as long as you profess biblical faith. In some senses, we're already there. In other ways, it's coming more and more where advancement in a company or an organization or the government will not come if you believe what the Bible says about gender. Where you will be asked, if not forced, to teach or promote that which is contrary to your faith. And you will face a choice of whether to keep your job or to keep your faith. And I want to prepare you on that day to lose your job, not your faith. I want to prepare you to lose your house, your car, your reputation, but never your faith. And then beyond this country, I think about brothers and sisters I mentioned from NBC who are serving as missionaries around the world. I want to prepare many more to go to other countries where you may lose your life for professing your faith. Last week, we talked about the type of Christianity we're passing down to the next generation. I want us to raise up a generation in the church whose aim in life is not ultimately to go to a great school, get a great degree, have a great job with a great spouse and a great house. No, whose ultimate aim is to accomplish a great commission that may cost them everything. So on all of these levels, whether it's simply pain or suffering in this world or persecution that comes from following Jesus, I want to prepare you well my prayer coming into these few moments today has been, God, please take your word today by your spirit and comfort people in suffering, prepare people for suffering, and save people from eternal suffering. So I want to show you God's answer to this question. How, you keep, how can you keep on rejoicing in the middle of suffering? And the answer is found in three truths from 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19 that I want to give you, and I want to call you to believe them with all your heart and be ready to recall them when that moment comes. So here's the first one. One, how can you keep on rejoicing in the middle of suffering? Believe that God is working and suffering is not the end. So let me actually read this whole passage to you, 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19, and pay particularly close attention to the first verse and the last verse, kind of bookends on this passage. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer, so this is the last verse, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So do you hear the, the first verse, the last verse? First verse, beloved, do not be surprised. Don't be shocked at the fiery trial when it comes upon you as though something strange were happening to you. So the Bible is addressing here what we all feel when we face suffering that we didn't see coming. 
Everything is going well until this or that happened, and all of a sudden, everything feels like it's out of control and up for question. It's like we believe that God is good and kind and loving and completely in control as long as our circumstances are smooth. But as soon as those circumstances change, we wonder, is God good? Is God kind? Is God loving? Is God in control? And the Bible is teaching here that even when our circumstances change, God is the same. He is still good. He is still kind. He is still loving. And he is absolutely, ultimately in control. Which is what the last verse says here. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Now that phrase, according to God's will, likely means a couple of things. One, this is differentiating from the kind of suffering that comes from disobeying God's will. So in this passage, Peter is drawing a distinction between suffering for doing good and suffering for doing evil, like murdering or stealing or meddling in others' business. So sometimes you and I experience suffering, hardship, pain, hurt on all kinds of levels because of our sin, because of our disobedience to God. But that's not the kind of suffering Peter's talking about here. He's talking about suffering according to God's will while doing good. So think about the kinds of suffering that this included in the first century when Peter wrote this. We've seen this already. Like Christians for doing good and following Jesus were being abused, insulted, reviled, ostracized, persecuted, even killed. So does that mean that God is somehow the author of abuse or the author of persecution? Absolutely not. These things are clearly a result of sin and evil in this world, and they affect even God's people who are doing good. But that's part of the point of the passage. In a world of sin and evil and abuse and pain and suffering, God's people are not immune to these things. As soon as you become a Christian, you don't have a shield around you that keeps you from suffering. If anything, you're now more susceptible to suffering because in addition to normal suffering in a fallen world, you may now suffer for following Jesus. So don't be surprised, the Bible says, at the fiery trial when it comes upon you as though something strange were happening to you. When all of God's people throughout the history of this sinful world have experienced the same thing. And how did they get through it? They believed that God was working and their suffering was not the end. Think about it. Through years of infertility, Abraham believed that God was working and his wife's barrenness was not the end. And eventually, when he was about 100 years old, he had a son named Isaac. Job lost all that he had. Possessions destroyed all of his children. Died in an instant. Boils all over his body as his wife tells him to curse God and die. Yet he held on to belief that God was working and he discovered that his suffering was not the end. Joseph in a dungeon for 12 years believed that God was working. This was not the end. Same for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in a fiery furnace. Daniel in a den of lions. They believed God was working. Their suffering was not the end. Ruth working in a field. David fleeing for his life. Hosea with an unfaithful wife over and over again. This is the story of people in the Bible. 
People who in their suffering believed that God was working and suffering was not the end. You say, well, what about those who suffered and died? Wasn't that the end for them? What about the list of people in Hebrews chapter 11 who like Stephen were stoned to death or sawn in two or killed with a sword? Or what about Peter himself who ended up being crucified? Wasn't suffering the end for him? Oh no, not at all. Just look to the center of the Bible. Jesus, the Son of God, and it's right here in this passage, verse 13. Rejoice insofar as you share in sufferings with and for Christ, with and for Jesus, because he was mocked and beaten and scourged and spit upon, nailed to a cross to die, all according to God's will, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 19. Get it, even in the most evil moment in all of history, the murder of Jesus in the flesh, even in that moment, God was working. And Jesus' suffering was not the end. Three days later, he rose from the grave. He now ascended into heaven where he is exalted the right hand of God and he is bringing everyone who trusts in him to glory with him. So brother or sister, believe this. Rejoice in this. Even in your suffering, you can know the good, kind, loving God of the universe creator of your life is working and your suffering will not be the end of your story. Hide this truth in your heart and recall it and rely on it in tough days. Believe that God is working and suffering is not the end. And so here's the second one to stand on when suffering comes. So one, believe that God is working, suffering is not the end. Two, believe that God is with you and his love for you knows no end. So I wanna show you this, God's presence with you and his love for you in two places. One in verse 13, one in verse 14. So first, verse 13, which we've already read, Peter references how we share Christ's sufferings. And I don't wanna move past that phrase without fully realizing the wonder of these words, Christ's sufferings. Because this, in so many ways, summarizes the entire meaning of Christmas. And if you're not a Christian, please listen really closely here. If you are a Christian, I pray that you will feel this in a fresh way today to all of us in a world that's full of sorrow and pain and hurt and suffering. Christmas is a reminder that God has not left us alone in this world. Christmas is an announcement that God has come to us in the person of Jesus. God has put on a robe of human flesh. He was born as a baby. And ultimately, yes, he was born to die on a cross for our sins, to rise from the dead so that every sinner who trusts in him can be forgiven of all their sins and enjoy eternal life with him. But there's more here, so don't miss it, in the very fact that Jesus has come to us and lived among us, we realize that for all who trust in Jesus, he not only saves you from your sin, but he sympathizes with you in your suffering. In other words, you have a Savior who knows how you feel. Are you hurting? Jesus knows what it's like to hurt. 
Have you been reviled or abused? Jesus knows what it is to be reviled and abused. Do you feel alone, disappointed, betrayed? Jesus knows what it is to feel all of those things. I've used the illustration before, what the Oxford Companion to music called sympathetic resonance. If there were two pianos on the stage, I could play middle C on one of them. And the same note, without anybody doing anything over there, the same note on that piano would gently respond, make the same noise that this piano is making. It's called sympathetic resonance. And when I think about that in a much greater way, I think about the hurts in your heart, in my heart, amidst sorrow in this world. When a note of sorrow hits our hearts, know this, that note resonates in his heart. When you walk through suffering, you have a Savior who knows what it's like to hurt as you're hurting. He loves you so much, and he lives to intercede for you and provide for all that you need in that moment. Which leads to verse 14 that takes us to a whole other level as the Bible says, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Now stop there. Just follow the flow of this verse. If you're insulted, derided, abused, persecuted for the name of Christ, you're blessed. Why? Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Oh, you got to see this. Do you want to know how much God loves all those who trust in Jesus, who have entered into relationship with him? Not only does Jesus resonate with you when you suffer, but he loves you so much that he covers you with his spirit in your suffering. The picture here of the spirit of glory resting upon you is like the cloud of God's glory resting on his people in the Old Testament as they wandered from place to place in the wilderness. So God's spirit rests on you as you walk through the wilderness of suffering. I believe this. You are not, you're never alone in the wilderness of suffering. You will never be alone no matter what that wilderness may hold. The Spirit is in you, on you. The Spirit of glory and of God. You ever wonder... Like, if this or that happens in my life, will I be able to stand? You wonder, what if I lose my child or my spouse or my parent? Could I stand? What if, what if I were to face that diagnosis? What if I were to face persecution? Could I stand? God is promising in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 14. God is promising you that when you get that call, when you get that diagnosis, when you face that persecution, the Holy Spirit of glory will be resting upon you and he will help you suffer. Even down to the moment when you breathe your last breath and your heart stops beating, the Holy Spirit of God will be resting upon you. He will help you die, and he will bring you to glory. Mark it down, brothers and sisters. In times of greatest suffering on earth, you will experience greatest support from heaven. How can you keep on rejoicing in the middle of suffering? Believe that God is with you, and his love for you knows no end. And finally, third truth Stand on in suffering. Believe. 
that God is worthy and that you can trust him to the end. So verse 15 says, let none of you suffer for sin and evil. And then verse 16 says, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, as you follow Christ, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. And this is where I want to make the connection to what we saw just a few months ago in Philippians chapter 3 and 4, talking about contentment and joy in suffering. I don't know if you remember, but I'll pull it up here. We talked about how Paul, when he's writing Philippians chapter 3, listed out all kinds of things in this world that are good, family heritage, social status, religious devotion, a moral lifestyle, and on and on. He starts talking about all these good things, and then he labels them loss. Rubbish is the word he uses. Compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus, he said all these best things in the world cannot compare with the gain of knowing Jesus, even suffering with him and eventually experiencing glory with him. Then we talked about how suffering at the core is when these good things are taken away from us in this world. And when people we love, family, friends, when our health is taken away, when our job is taken away, when our reputation is taken away, when relationships, stability, so many good things we can list here. But we talked about how when you have already put all those things in a column under loss, and you have put Jesus alone in a column under gain, then when good things like these are taken away from you. It's not easy. It's definitely not easy. The sadness is right and deep and the pain is real and the tears are many. But when Jesus is your life, then suffering, the taking away of these things ultimately drives you more to who? To him, to Jesus. And the whole point of Philippians chapter three and four was that he is better, that he's better than all the best people and things in this world put together. He is worthy of all your trust. He is the source of ultimate eternal joy. And this is critical then to keeping joy in suffering. It's critical to remember that Jesus is supremely better than all the best things this world offers you put together. And you can trust him all the way to the end. You think about it, there's coming a day when all these good things will be taken away from you and me. Family, possessions, job, health, our very breath, it'll all be gone. And if you don't have Jesus on that day, you will have nothing. You'll have nothing but eternal punishment as the consequence of your sin before God, according to 1 Peter 4, 17 and 18. But for all who have trusted in Jesus, who have found in him the source of eternal joy, on that day you lose everything in this world you will gain the imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance of Jesus in the world to come. On that day, you will have God in all of his glory and his goodness for all of eternity. 
So how do you keep on rejoicing and suffering? By believing that God is worthy and you can trust him all the way to the end. So I guess that's the question that we must all ultimately answer then. Do we believe that God is worthy of our trust? the voice of one crying in the wilderness makes straight the way of the Lord. Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries is looking for those who will partner with us in this ministry of making a path straight for the Lord directly to the hearts of listeners. If you would like to partner with us to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and deliver the saving grace of our Lord to others through volunteering, through prayer, and through donations, please call us at 602 602- following program is called Equipping the Saints. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundstedt, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. 
But there's something that restrains that right now. And we're going to see that. And because of that restraint, you Thessalonians cannot be in this horrible time. Because there's something holding that event and that person back. So he says, let no one deceive you. For it, the day of the Lord will not come, back in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3, unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. And notice what we saw last time. Who opposes, verse 4, and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship. At this time, you've got the apostasy. You've got everyone who's turned, and they don't claim to follow Jesus anymore, but they're worshiping all kinds of gods and all kinds of different things, Right? During that seven years, there are a remnant that gets saved. There's a few small remnant that gets saved. But you have this world that is ripe for this Antichrist. And so he opposes and exalts himself above all the gods of the world. And he says here, so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself to be God. In the middle of the tribulation, we're going to see this today. The Antichrist declares himself to be God. And he seeks to get worship from everyone on the earth. And we see that last three and a half years as the whole earth literally goes to hell before Christ comes, which we read about earlier, and delivers his people and destroys his enemies. So he takes his seat in the temple, displaying himself as being God. This Antichrist, this man, is an opposite. He's an antichrist. He's going to portray himself as, in a sense, the Christ. But he's not. He's not. God took on human flesh. The Lord Jesus took on human flesh. This is a man empowered by Satan, a counterfeit, very fitting for the end and judgment of this world who has rejected Christ. So he takes his place in this temple, displaying himself to be God, and that's when God's judgment gets poured on full. And you can read Revelation. It gets poured on full on this earth. And they were unwilling to repent. Keep reading in there. God's judgment got hotter and hotter and hotter and worse and worse and worse. They still wouldn't repent. And then notice what Paul says in verse 5 of 2 Thessalonians 2. Do you not remember while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? This is an amazing statement. Paul came to Thessalonica, and he was there three weeks, shared the gospel, they got saved, and during that three weeks, he's sharing this. He's sharing the truth about Christ and the future and what's going to happen. And they were eagerly awaiting Christ, and they believed it. He says, don't you remember? I already told you this stuff, guys. Don't get taken captive by those guys with the false letters and the dumb stuff. Don't For us, don't go on TV and watch those prophecy shows and all that junk on TBN. Read the Bible and examine it with Scripture, Scripture with Scripture. So he says, basically, don't you remember I told you? Don't so quickly get shaken up. Don't be frightened in the midst of all your persecution. You're suffering greatly. The day of the Lord can't come unless these things happen. But stand firm, verse 15, as we're going to see, in Christ, and hold firm to the truth that you have already learned. So we come to our passage. Long introduction, but needed. Come to our passage, verse 6. And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he may be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power, signs, and false wonders 
with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. You came here today. This is a warning as we read through this. And for this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence that they might believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. God gives them a chance to believe, but when you reject, he allows you to be deceived, as we're going to say. So then, notice, first of all, the Holy Spirit's restraint, I believe, will be removed when the church is raptured, taken up, that the lawless man will be revealed. That has to happen. That's why it hasn't happened yet. That's why the Antichrist hasn't been revealed yet. There's a restraining influence on the wickedness that would come forth through this man. Verse 6, and you know what restrains a nice. And Thessalonians, you're less than a year old in the faith, and you know this already. You already know this. There's some believers who've been in the faith for years, and they couldn't tell you what this is. In the end of 1 Thessalonians, it says, reason it's all the brethren. We should know the word of God. We should know the word of God, not for pride, but for humility, to humbly serve the Lord in the context of his truth. He says, and you know what restrains him now so that in his time he may be revealed. This is the Antichrist. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. Interesting statement. You guys know it already. You know, and this tense in Greek is, now Greek's an interesting language, very vivid. God and his sovereignty brought forth the New Testament in Greek, which is very amazing, very vivid language. The term you know in Greek is literally this. You knew in the past, done deal, and you still know. You know what restrains him right now, so that he won't be revealed now, but be revealed in his time. That's what he's talking about. He says, you know. Now, he's not saying, you you could parse this too much and think too deeply, which we do at times. He's not saying the man of lawlessness is alive throughout all time and all ages, and he's just restraining, he's eventually going to be revealed. He's not saying that. He's saying the groundwork for the man that will be this man is being restrained right now, but at some point in the future it will be removed and then he'll be revealed. So what does he mean by this phrase, you know what restrains him now? It's in a neuter gender in Greek. It could speak of a person, could speak of a thing, whatever that might be. And this has led lots of people to think, well, what restrains this Antichrist right now? Could it be governments? That's one of the answers. Government restrains him right now. He can't do what he would do. That's possible. Yet I believe, and there's a lot of other interpretations, I believe they fall flat when you actually just read the text and you actually just read on. It's amazing how many people give interpretations and they share it with people. They say, this is what this means. And the people just take it and they don't read the next verse. We need to read the next verse. And you know what restrains him now so that in his time he may be revealed. For, this is an explanation, The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he, now it becomes masculine. He who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. It's a person that restrains this evil influence, this framework that the Antichrist will be able to flourish in. The term restraints means to be held back, to be restrained. The one restraining must have been restraining in Paul's day at that point, right? You know who's restraining, right? And he's going to restrain until the day of the Lord, which has not happened yet even for us. We're going to be taken before that. So it can't be a human being because it's over all that time. 
It has to be God, as we're going to see. God is the one who is restraining this. But how is he restraining? And how could God be taken out of the way? We know God is omnipresent. Well, I think the answer comes, and it's pretty clear when we think about the context here. Look at verse 7. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. The term taken out of the way could be literally translated until he is from the midst. Sounds like the rapture to me, I tell you right now. Sounds very clear. And they know it already. Thessalonians, you know already. You already know the Thessalonians. Basically, you know who restrains him. I think it's pretty clear the only possible interpretation that really truly fulfills the scripture here is, I believe, the church. You see, the church is indwelt by the Spirit of God. When you believe in Jesus, this is a mystery that was not revealed before, but now has come forth. When you trust in Jesus Christ, God gives you his very spirit to indwell you forever. And it is a pledge of the very inheritance of the final job and salvation. You receive God in a sense that God's going to finish the job. It's amazing. And he says he will be with you forever. Jesus says, I'm going, but I'm going to send someone a comforter. He's going to be with you forever. And so I believe the church indwelt with the Spirit of God is the only possibility of something, how God could be removed. And it fits exactly in the context here. God is restraining the framework for evil to flourish to the point where the Antichrist could flourish. He's restraining it through the church, through believers on this earth by the Spirit of God. I believe that's what it is. He says, and you know what restrains it. Now, you know Thessalonians, you know what it is so that in his time he may be revealed. You see, in his time, that restraint won't be there. And then he'll be revealed. So Paul also gives a very interesting statement here also. Notice this, verse 6, And you know what restrains him. Now you know Thessalonians, it's the church, the Spirit of God through the church, so that in his time he may be revealed. But notice this explanation. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who restrains will do so until he's taken out of the midst, taken away. Do you see that? For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Very interesting statement. The term mystery in Greek doesn't mean what we think of mystery. We think of mysterious. The term mystery was a word used that spoke of something that was hidden, that was not revealed. It even spoke of those mystery religions where they had these Truths within them, they weren't truths, they were falsehoods, but there were these things that were not revealed, but only to the initiated in a sense. It's something that's there, but isn't revealed completely yet. He says the mystery, which is unknown to some, is already at work. The literally working, it's working right now. What's lawlessness? Lawlessness is sin. Remember the man here is called the man of lawlessness. And the principle behind this man is already at work. You already know it. Right now, the very wickedness Satan is bringing forth in the world is a very small picture and a foreshadowing of the intense wickedness that will happen when the lawless one is revealed. It's already working. Just watch the news, right? Lawlessness is already at work. The underlying spiritual wickedness is already in the world and it's moving towards a point in which restraint is removed that this man could take his place and declare himself to be God, and the world would follow him unto their own judgment. That's what he's saying here. It's already at work. So notice, we saw this last time also, but everywhere 
we see this man, this Antichrist, being spoken of right next door is his destruction. We saw it in Daniel. We see it in Revelation. God speaks about him, but right next door, you got to know, he's not going to get away with it. And the same thing in our passage. Paul, inspired by the Spirit, interjects this in verse 8, that we would know that what he's talking about, not going to get away with it. Verse 8, and then that lawless one will be revealed. That's when the restraint's removed. Whom the Lord will slay, isn't this great? With the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by his appearing of his coming. Hey, lost one's going to come out. It's going to be seven years, three and a half, the last worst part. But when Christ comes, he's going to slam with the breath of his mouth. We'll talk about that and bring an end to him. He's not going to get away with anything. Don't freak out about the Antichrist. His very short days are numbered. You see, he will be revealed and he will make a deal to Israel and allow them to start sacrificing, but he won't have full power at that time. In the middle of the tribulation, Satan's going to give him his power. We're going to talk about that in a minute. And he's going to go full force, declare himself to be God, and then he's going to be destroyed when Jesus comes. We read this earlier in Revelation 19. Let's read it. This is what he's talking about. When Jesus comes, he's going to be destroyed. And it's metaphoric. The sword of his mouth. All the Lord has to say the word and he's done. Remember, everything was created through the Lord Jesus. Light be and light was. When the Lord Jesus speaks, it happens. Revelation 19, verse 11, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True. Amen. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. Jesus came in his first coming not to judge. He said, I didn't come to judge, but to bring salvation. Jesus didn't judge anyone. He brought salvation. But if you reject him in his second coming, he's coming to judge and wage war against those who have rejected him, as we'll see today. And his eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems, and he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and our Savior spilt his blood for us. And his name is called the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word came and took on flesh and dwelt among us, John 1. And his name is the word of God. And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white, clean, were following him on white horses. You see, they didn't even have to do any battle. He's in the front. He's going to do it himself, right? They're following him. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword. This is what our passage is talking about. So that he may smite the nations and he will rule over them with a rod of iron as he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. God is mad at sin. Don't take sin lightly. You think you sit it up? God's mad at it. So mad he sent his son to die for our sins. But he loves us too. He says here, And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe, on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in midheaven, Come assemble for the great supper of God in order that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free and slaves, small and great. And I saw the beast. That's the guy. That's the bad guy. I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. He's going to try to fight the Lord, right? Good, good luck. And the beast was seized. And with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast. We're going to see that in a minute. And those who had worshipped the image. And the two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. 
the Lord's going to slam with the sword of his mouth. Don't get caught up in thinking Satan's going to get away with anything, that the Antichrist is going to get away with anything, not at all. God is actually going to use him to accomplish his purpose, to allow his judgment to come upon those who rejected Christ. That's what it's about, as we're going to see. Notice, we're going to see the power behind this lawless one and his purpose. Look at verse 9, coming back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8. Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. When Christ comes again, the lawless one's dust. And now you have an explanation. That is, speaking of the lawless one, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. I told you today it's a serious message. The Lord has brought you today. This is a serious message. And I don't want one person here who isn't saved to leave here without trusting in Christ. You may think you know Christ. Maybe you're on your deathbed. You may think you know him, but trust in the Lord. Believe in him. Get your sins forgiven before it's too late. You don't want to be standing before him saying, give me water for my tongue. I'm in agony because of this flame. Send someone to tell my brothers about this place. You don't want to be doing that. So here we have an explanation. His coming is in accord with the activity of Satan. The term activity, operative power of Satan. Satan's going to give him all his operative power for those last three and a half years. And notice what precipitates that. Turn to Revelation chapter 12. We talked about this before. We're going to see a scene in heaven. We don't get to see this stuff, but we see it in Scripture. It's amazing. A scene in heaven. And this happens in the middle of the tribulation. That's seven years before Jesus comes, right in the middle. And it precipitates this man getting all of Satan's power. You'll see what happens to cause this to happen. Revelation 12, verse 7. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels, Michael's the head angel, and his angels waging war with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels waged war. And they were not strong enough. Isn't that great? Praise the Lord. And there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. We know initially the dragon, when he fell, Satan fell, he took a third of the angels. And we know he fell to earth, but yet he has access. Job, he comes up, presents himself, accuses the brethren day and night. But that's going to be taken away. Verse 9, And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, who accuses them before our God day and night. And they, that's those who were accused, overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even to death. For this reason, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. That would be us if you're a believer. We'll be there at this time. We'll be able to look at each other and remember this day, right? And we'll be praising God for what he's doing because it came true which all will. Woe to the earth and the sea. Notice this, because the devil has come down to you having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. This is what precipitates Satan giving this Antichrist all his power. Look at chapter 13, 
Notice we have the beast introduced here, and that's the part of Revelation. Revelation 12, Satan introduced the relationship to Israel in Jesus. Chapter 13, the beast introduced, okay? That's the theme of Revelation here. Verse 13, and he stood on the sand of the seashore, and I saw a beast coming up out of the sea. That's the beast. And notice he's coming out of the sea. That's a prophetic reality like Daniel shares. He's a Gentile. I think the false prophet's a Jew, but the beast is going to be a Gentile, the Antichrist. He says, having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, and his heads were blaster stains. Now, going through a lot, don't worry about it. We've talked about it. You can get the CD. It's just talking about that he is basically intricately aligned with Satan and the kingdoms that Satan has had since he became the god of this world after falling. You can look at Revelation 12:3 and then chapter 17 of Revelation. And then notice, he says, and verse 2, and the beast which... I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like a lion. This description mirrors Daniel's prophecy in chapter 7, and it reveals that the final beast is like the four previous kingdoms. Okay, then a second half, verse 2. And the dragon, this is what I want to get to, gave him all his power, his throne, and great authority. This is where the Antichrist gets all of Satan's power, authority, and throne. This is when he declares himself to be God in the temple. This is when all hell literally breaks loose. This is when the man of lawlessness is fully revealed. And keep reading. And I saw one of his heads that could be a kingdom that he did, or it could be him, as if it had been slain and his fatal wound was healed. Evidently, we have him appearing to be slain or, you know, and having a false resurrection. Right? And the whole earth was amazed. And followed after the beast. And they worshipped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast saying, who is like the beast? Worship's just giving them an exaltation, by the way. Who is like the beast? Who is able to wage war with him? And there was given a mouth to him speaking arrogant words and blasphemies. And authority to act for 42 months was given. That's three and a half years. And so here we have, in the middle of the tribulation, the beast is given all Satan's power and authority, and God is going to allow him to have his way for three and a half years so that it will accomplish God's purposes.
We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.